John Newton was born um, on the 24th of July, 1725, in London, to a very godly mother, but a very irreligious, seafaring father who drank rather a lot. But his mother actually died when he was six, which left him mainly to himself. And because he was left mainly to himself, Newton says that he became a debauched uh, sailor. That's his description. He described himself as a miserable outcast on the coast of West Africa, which is where he was for two years. He said he was a slave. He was a slave trading uh, sea captain until an epileptic seizure uh, ended his career. And when that happened, he became a surveyor of tides. You wouldn't have believed that you did that, but you did because everything went by ship. So tides were very important, and he became a surveyor of tides in Liverpool. And if you became a surveyor of tides and understood the tides, not only in Liverpool, but around the world, you were very well paid. He was a love pastor. He pastored two congregations in Olney and London for 43 years and was a devoted husband to Mary uh, for, four, uh, for, sorry, for 43 years in London and devoted for Mary uh, for 40 years. She died in 1790. He actually was a personal friend, as we know through the film, <laughs> uh, to Wilbur, William Wilberforce, uh, Charles Simeon, Henry Martin, William Carey, John Wesley, George Whitfield, and of course, he was the author of probably the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace. Uh, he died on the 21st of, the, of December, 1807. He died at the age of 82. So why be interested in this man? Well, we must not forget our church history on which we stand. He was one of a few that, it, that God has strangely raised up to serve him in a particular time. It's also as well the testimony of his peers, whether you believe them or not. They described him as both strong and durable, tender and unshakably rugged in the defense of truth. They said he was relentlessly humble and patient and merciful in dealing with people. Now, if you look in the Greek, all of Jesus' words and deeds fit into one category or the other. They either fit into A, the Greek word to, which actually means tough, or the Greek word T, which actually means tender. So everything that Jesus did was either tough or tender. Interesting. What a mixture. That's why they said no wonder uh, and no one spoke like he did, like this man. What was said of Newton was that he had a similar disposition. But was he as they said he was? Um, I'm sure that my family will recall me uh, differently uh, as, uh, as I get older, but uh, so we don't know. I know it's a risk to take the topic of John, uh, uh, John Newton, particularly on a setting like this. Some would prefer a sermon or uh, a New Year's message or something like that. But actually, I think what we can do is learn from these guys. There's something there for us to learn. And God raises up people so that we can learn. 
They're just not part of our history. They're part of our teaching. And I would like to look at his life, then look at two aspects of his life that we can learn from. With the help of the life of John Newton, I think it's fair to say that, and I want to say this of us all, all our heroes have have feet of clay. Even if they're a hero of today, they have a feet of, they are feet of clay. All the Christian greats do. And Newton himself knew this. He once wrote this, he said, In my imagination, I sometimes fancy that I could create a perfect minister. So do you in regard to me. I take the eloquence of, the knowledge of, the zeal of, the pastoral meekness, tenderness, and the piety of. And then I put them all together in one man. And I say to myself, this would be a perfect minister. Now there is one who, if he chose to, could actually do this. But he never did it. He has seen it fit to do otherwise and divide these gifts into every man severally as he will. So neither... uh, We, nor Newton, will ever be all that we should be. Newton had his strengths and he had his weaknesses, and I want us to learn from them. And at times his strengths were his weaknesses, and his weaknesses his strengths. So before we look at the life of Newton, let us remind ourselves that his life and testimony was, as he described, all about the heart-breaking mercy of God. That is a wonderful statement, isn't it? Even at the end of his life, he still marveled that he was saved and called to preach the gospel. From his last will and testament, he said this, I commit my soul to my gracious God and Saviour, who mercifully spared and preserved me. When I was an apostate, a blasphemer and an infidel, and delivered me from the state of misery on the coast of Africa, to which my obstinate wickedness had plunged me, and who has been pleased to admit me, though most unworthy, to preach this glorious gospel. I don't think that will appear in my last will and testament. He could never get over the wonder of his own sheer rescue and triumphant grace. Maybe you shouldn't, or I shouldn't either. So Newton's life. Newton's mother was a a devout congregationalist, for all the congregationalists amongst us, and uh, and was, uh, was, he was the the only child. John knew the Westminster uh, Catechism, and knew the hymns of Isaac Watts. But when she died in 1732, when John was just six, I'll just go back a bit. Think about that. Six. John knew the Westminster Catechism and the hymns of Isaac Watts. But when she died in 1732, when John was six, Now, mothers and fathers, now we know what we should be teaching our children. Yeah? His father married again, and his second wife had no spiritual interest. 
Newton wrote in his narrative that he was in school only two of all of his growing up years from between the ages of eight to ten. That was in boarding school at Stratford. He was mainly self-taught and remained that all of his life. He never had any theological formal training. At the age of 11, he began to sail with his father and made five voyages to the Mediterranean until he was 18. He wrote about their relationship. This is one just for people struggling with their mothers and fathers. I am persuaded that he loved me, but he seemed not willing that I should know it. I was with him in a state of fear and bondage. His sternness broke and overawed my spirit. When he was 17, he met Mary Catlett and fell in love. She was 13. And for the next seven years travelling and misery, he dreamed about her every day. Men, are you listening to this? None of the scenes of misery and wickedness I afterwards experienced ever banished her a single hour together from my waking thoughts or for the seven years following. That's how it should be, guys. They did eventually marry when he was 24 and they were married for 40 years. As we said earlier, she died in 1790. His love for her, it was extraordinary before and after the marriage. Three years after she died, he published a collection of letters he had written to her on three voyages to Africa after they were married. Callie and I have our letters. They're under the bed. You will not read them. Our kids are after them. He was actually pressed, if you remember this, do you remember being pressed into naval service against his will when he was 18 and he sailed away bitterly on a ship called the Harridge as a midshipman. His friend and then biographer Richard Cecil said, the companions that he met with, uh, with here completed the ruin of his principles. Of himself he wrote, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor so far as I can remember, the least sensibility of conscience. My love to Mary was now the only restraint that I had. On one of his visits home, he deserted, but was caught, and was confined for two days in the guardhouse, kept in irons. He was publicly stripped and whipped, and he was degraded of his office. When he was 20 years old, he was put off a ship onto some small islands just southeast of Sierra Leone in West Africa. And for about a year and a half, he lived as a virtual slave in in almost destitute circumstances. The wife of his master described him, despised him, treated him cruelly. He wrote later that African slaves would even try and smuggle him food from their slim rations. He later in life remarked uh, the seemingly accidental way in which a ship put in anchor on this island after seeing some 
smoke and just happened to be it just happened to be the ship with a captain who knew Newton's father the providence of god is extraordinary and who managed to pay for him so that he could be free from his bondage that was february 1747 he was not quite 21 but god was about to close in you've heard me quote this uh, before this is in regard to his uh, conversion this is where i got it from uh, and uh, so you have to bear with me if you think that you've heard it before the ship had business uh, on the seas for over a year then on march the 21st 1748 he was on his way home to england in the north atlantic and god acted to rescue the african blasphemer on the 50, uh, 57 years later in 80, 1805 uh, when newton was 80 years old he wrote in his diary march 21 1805 not well able to write but I endeavour to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer and praise. He marked the day as sacred and precious of his own salvation and did that for 50 years. The story goes, as you know, he awoke in the night uh, to a violent storm as his room began to fill with water. He ran for the deck. The captain stopped him, asked him to fetch a knife. The man who went up in his place was washed overboard and died. He was assigned to the pumps and heard himself say, if not shout, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. It was the first time that he'd ever expressed the need for mercy he worked the pumps from three in the morning until noon slept for an hour and then took the helm and steered the ship i'm not quite sure how you do that but sort of that way at the wheel he had time to think back over his life and his spiritual condition and at six o'clock the next evening it seemed though there might be hope he said I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favour and I began to pray but found that I could not utter a prayer of faith. I could not draw near to be reconciled to God. I could not call him Father. The comfortless principles of infidelity are deeply riveted. The great question was therefore, how can I obtain faith? When he was released from steering, he found a Bible and got help from Luke chapter 11, verse 13. It's a strange verse to go to, isn't it, really? Uh, Where it says, uh, which promises the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He reasoned, if this book be true, the promises in the passage must be true likewise. I have very need of this spirit by which the whole was written. In order that I might understand it aright, he engaged here to give the spirit to those who ask. So I must therefore pray for it. And if it is God, he will make it right of his own accord. Isn't that simple? 
If it's in there, he'll do it. We, we all argue, don't we? If it's in the word, he'll do it. It's just simple, really. That was the conclusion that he came to. Perhaps your ship's not sinking enough for us to be able to realize that. He spent the rest of the voyage in deep seriousness as he read and prayed over the scriptures. And on April the 8th, he anchored in Ireland. And the next day, the storm at sea was so violent that they thought they would all be sunk. Newton described what God had done in two weeks. He said, Thus far, I was answered that before we arrived in Ireland, I had satisfactory evidence in my own mind of the truth of the gospel, as considered in itself, and of its exact suitableness to answer all my needs. It's just simple, isn't it? I've read it. It's true. I stood in need of an almighty saviour, and stood a one I f- and, and, and such a one I found as described in the New Testament. Thus, far from the Lord has wrought a marvelous thing. I was no longer an infidel. I heartily renounced my former profaneness, heartily, and had taken up some right notions. I was seriously disposed and sincerely touched with a sense of the undeserved mercy I had received in being brought safe through so many dangers. I was sorry for my past and my misspent life and purposed immediately reformation. I was quite freed from the habits of swearing to which seemed to be deeply rooted to me as a second nature. Thus, To all appearance, I was a new man. It was a remarkable change. But from a later standpoint, Newton did not view that as full conversion. I I would go on that one, wouldn't you? Somebody turned up and explained that to you. But Newton thought there was still more to be done. Later he would write this, I was greatly deficient in many respects, I was in some degree affected with a sense of my enormous sins, but I was a little aware of the innate evils of my own heart. I had no no apprehension of the hidden life of a Christian as it consists in the communion with God by Jesus Christ, a continual dependence on him. I acknowledged the Lord's mercy in pardoning what was the past, but depended chiefly upon my own resolution to do better for the time to come. I cannot consider myself a believer, in the full sense of the word, till a considerable time afterwards. It's actually true that salvation was, and is, and will to come. That's how he was describing it. Interestingly though, For six years after his conversion, he said that he had no Christian friend or faithful minister to advise him. And he became the captain of a slave trading ship that went to sea again until December 1749. We have a perspective that he did that before. He actually was the captain of such a ship with slaves that looked like that when he was a Christian. 
And we can portray that a little bit differently, that he left it. He didn't. This was a Christian man doing this. In his mature years, he, became, he came to feel the intense remorse remorse for his participation in the slave trade and of course we know that he joined William Wilberforce in opposing it 30 years after leaving the sea he wrote an essay thoughts upon an African slave trade which closed with a reference to a commerce so iniquitous so cruel so oppressive so destructive as the African slave trade on February the 1st at 1749 he married Mary it's wrong in your notes uh, I've got uh, 1750 in my notes uh, that June that he married in the February his father uh, drowned while swimming in Hudson Bay and he went then on three long voyages after the marriage. He left Mary alone firstly for 10 months and then 13 months and uh, a longer time. Can you imagine that, guys? You get married and you go away for 10 months and come back for just a few days and go again for 13 months, come back, ship's loaded, off you go again. But in November 1754... He had an epileptic seizure, seizure um, and he never, ever sailed again. Uh, in the years between his seafaring and his first pastorate at Olney, he was a surveyor of the tides in Liverpool and began to be a, an active lay person. He, begin to, he began to interact with evangelicals both Anglican and independent, and became a person very interested uh, emotionally and intellectually with what was then being called the New Awakening. He was taken under his wing by George Whitfield, and I don't know whether you would be courageous enough, but he used to refer to him as Little Whitfield. That was the nickname that he had for him. I think if I met Whitfield, I would not want to do that. But there you go. He devoted himself to a rigorous program whilst in Liverpool of self-study, applied and taught himself Greek, Hebrew and Syriac. Taught himself. He said... I was in some hopes that perhaps sooner or later Christ may call me into his service. I believe it was a distant hope of this that determined me to study the original scriptures. And it's true, isn't it, that if you've got a call on your life, then you get into the scriptures. You don't just wait and say, that's the call, therefore now I do. You get into it now, which is what he did. Along with these, he read the best writers in divinity in both Latin, English and French, which he had taught himself while at sea. But he gave himself mainly to the scriptures. The upshot theologically of his study, together with his personal experience of grace, can be summed up by Bruce Hinmarsh, 
By the early 1760s, Newton's theological formation was complete. There would be few significant realignments of his essential beliefs after this. He was, to Phil Harmon's delight, a five-point Calvinist. Uh, Amen, brother. But the spirit of Calvinism was sweet and tender, which is one of his, the great concerns of his message. We're going to come back to that later. In 16... uh, 1764, he accepted the call to the pastorate of the Church of England Parish, praise God for Anglicans, in Olney, and served there for 16 years. There's the church still there, the manse is not. There it was. And then he accepted at the age of 54 the call to St. Mary's Woolnoth, there it is, still there today, in London, where he began 27 years of ministry on December the 8th, 1779. They're all leaving to pay the... <clears throat> Feed the meter. The last time that he was in the pulpit of St. Mary's was in October 1806 when he was 81 years old. His eyes and his ears were failing, but his good friend Richard Cecil came to him and suggested that he cease preaching at 80 because he was a little bit... 80 is a bit too much, isn't it? Newton responded, What shall this old African blasphemer stop while I can speak? John and Mary had no children of their own, but adopted two nieces. When Mary died, 17 years before John, John lived with the family of one of those nieces and was cared for her by, as he described, as much as his own daughter would have cared for. He died December the 21st, 1807, at the age of 82. A month before he died, he wrote this. He wrote, he said, It is a great thing to die. And when flesh and heart fail, to have God for the strength of our heart and our portion forever, I know whom I've believed, and he is able to keep that which I've committed against that day. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me that day. The best way that we can learn uh, from John Newton is to briefly look at two aspects of his remarkable ministry over 40 years. There are loads of aspects that I can take. I just want to do two. Uh, And both of them are, are seen as reasonably controversial. So we'll, uh, and cause problems latterly or after his life. So I want to look at what, some, what, as, uh, somebody has desc- what he described himself as Newton's habitual tenderness. The phrase habitual tenderness is Newton's. Uh, he, it is a way which he described the believer should live. In writing to a friend, he wrote this. He believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness. And he lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. 
This gives him habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. It is plain already what some, uh, what some of the roots of tenderness are, uh, tenderness are in that sentence. You can see that he believes tenderness to be tied up with weakness, unworthiness, grace, pardoning love, gentleness. And you can see that. So let's get a little bit of a snapshot. Richard Cecil, that's Mr. Richard Cecil, good-looking bloke with big nose, uh, said, Mr. Newton could no longer live than he could love. His love to people was the signature of his life. This was true of groups and true of individuals. He loved perishing people and he loved his own redeemed people. Josiah Bull said this, the young especially had a warm place in his affectionate heart. He relates that one little sailor boy with his father called on Mr. Newton and he took the boy between his knees and he said to him, I too have been at sea much. And he sang to him a naval song. For 43 years, his two flocks had a special tender place in his heart. Richard Cecil said that Newton's preaching was not often well prepared, nor careful, nor graceful in delivery. Sort of a bit like Rupert's, really. I I have not got habitual tenderness, Rupert. But he said he possessed, like Rupert, so much affection for his people and so much zeal for their best interests. See, they didn't let me finish, Rupert. That the defect of his manner bore little consideration with the constant hearers. Once he complained in a letter of his busyness, I have seldom one hour free from interruption. Letters that must be answered, visitors that must be received, business that must be attended to. I have good, a good many sheep and lambs to look after, the sick, the afflicted, the, the souls of my dear Lord. And therefore, whatever stands still, these must not be neglected. Newton's tenderness touched individuals as well as groups. The most remarkable incident of this would be William Cooper, or as I call him, Cowper, because I'm from Willenhall. Uh, The mentally ill poet, as he was, and hymn writer, actually came to live with him in Olney uh, during 12 of Newton's 16 years there. He took him in for 12 years. Newton took Cooper into his home For five months at a time, 14 months at a time, he was so depressed that this man could not function alone. In fact, Richard Cecil said that over Newton's whole lifetime, his house was an asylum for the perplexed and afflicted. Newton says of Cooper's stay, For nearly 12 years, we were seldom separated for seven hours at a time. When we were awake and at home, the first six passed daily admiring and aiming to imitate him. 
During the second six, I walked pensively with him in the valley of the shadow of death. That's Newton. When Cooper's brother died in 1770, Newton resolved to help him by collaborating with him, writing hymns for the church. These became known as the Olney Hymns. Magnificent hymn book there. But soon Cooper was emotionally unable to carry uh, through his part of the plan. So Newton said, I will press on, writing uh, one hymn a week without Cooper, until there was over 300. 67 are attributed to Cooper. The last hymn is in there is... Uh, a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. We're just going to break before I bring it to a conclusion in a minute. So Phil, if you can come up. The reason that I want to break is that I just want you to know that this is a hymn that some of you will know and some of you will not. But the reason I want you to sing it is that I want you to think that the man writing this is a depressive person that has not an ability to function on his own, but has discovered the relation, a relationship with God. It is said that in, in January 1773, that th- this man writing this hymn sank into the d- deepest depression and never went to hear Newton preach again. Newton preached at Cooper's funeral and explained what happened. He said, he drank tea with me in the afternoon. The next morning a violent storm overtook him. I used to visit him often, but no argument could prevail with him to come and see me. He used to point the finger at the church and say, you know comfort, I have, I, you know the comfort I have had there and, now, and how I have seen the glory of the Lord in this house. And until I go there, I will not go anywhere else. He was one of those who came out of great tribulations. He suffered much here for 27 years. But eternity is long enough to make amends for this. (laughs) For what is all he has endured in this life when compared with the rest which remaineth for the children of God? With respect to patience, Newton said... In regard to Cooper, I have been 30 years forming my own views. In the course of this time, some hills have been sunk, some valleys have risen, but how reasonable within me to expect all this should take place in another person that is in the course of a year or two. I want us to sing this hymn, not knowing it, but knowing the condition of the person who was in it. And when you sing it, you'll think these are quaint words and maybe they're... But I want you to think of the heart that they came from. That this man uh, was a depressive man all of his life, could only function with the help of another man, but managed to have a relationship with his God that caused him to pen such things. Okay, we're on the downward track. I don't know where we are, Fleur. What was the last one? (laughs) 
I'll read that out to you in a minute. Um, Strong in truth. Uh, He had a a passion for truth. And he described it as uh, the reformed vision of God as he saw it. Uh, But he did not believe in controversy because he believed that it would not serve a purpose. He said, I see the unprofitableness of controversy, controversy in the case of Job and his friends. For if God had not interposed, had they lived to this day, they would have continued in dispute. So he he actually laboured to avoid controversy and and to replace it with what he called biblical demonstrations of truth. My principle, he said, uh, method of defeating heresy is establishing truth. One purpose to fill a bushel with tares. Now, if I can fill it first with wheat, I shall defy his attempts. He knew that receiving the greatest truths required supernatural illumination. From this, he inferred that his approach would be both patience and unobtrusive. I am a friend of peace. I am being deeply convinced that no one can profitably understand the great truths and doctrines of the Gospels any further than he is taught of God. I have not a wish to uh, obtrude my own tenets upon others in a way of controversy. Yet I do not think myself bound to conceal them. Newton had a strong, clear, Calvinistic um, theology. So... He believed in what we now know as tulip. He believed in total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And he loved this vision of God. In the preface to the hymn book that we looked at, he wrote, The views I have received on the doctrines of grace are essential to my peace. And I've lost my place. They are essential to my peace. I could not live comfortably a day or an hour without them. I likewise believe them to be friendly to holiness and to have a direct influence in producing and maintaining the gospel conversion. And therefore, I must not be ashamed of them. But in truth, he wasn't going to sell them either. But he believed that the cause of truth may be discredited by what he called improper management. Now, I think some of us that have come from a Calvinistic background know that those doctrines have been improperly managed sometimes. Therefore, he says, the scripture which teaches us that we are to say is equally explicit as the temper and the spirit of which they are to speak. Though I had knowledge of all mysteries and the tongue of an angel to declare them, I could hope for a little acceptance or usefulness unless I was to speak it in love. Of all the people who engage in controversy, we who are called Calvinists are most expressly bound by our own principles to the the exercise of what he called gentleness in moderation in these doctrines. The scriptural maximum that the wrath 
of man worketh not the righteousness of God is verified by daily observation, he believed. If our zeal is embittered by expressions of anger, inventiveness, scorn, we are doing a disservice to these truths, he believed. He believed that if we fought them, that we would bring them into discredit. He believed that most Calvinistic texts in the New Testament call for tenderness, tenderness and patience with opponents because they were decisive works of God. Newton cared more about, as he said, influencing people with truth than winning a debate and would often walk away from an argument. William Jay recounts how Newton described the place of Calvinism. He said, he was having tea one day with Newton, and Newton said, I am more of a Calvinist than anything else. But I use Calvinism in my readings and my preaching as I do sugar. I take a lump, I put it into the teacup, and I stir it, adding, I do not give it alone and whole, but mixed and diluted. In other words, his Calvinism permeates everything that he was. Few people like to eat sugar cubes, I hope, but they like the effect of sugar when it permeates through on different things. His strength was in being um, non-controversial, and, and which is not the way that he's portrayed, particularly sometimes in films. Did Newton strike the right balance? in being patient, tender-hearted, non-controversial in regard to truth? William Plummer thinks not. William Plummer wrote this, The pious and amiable John Newton made it a rule never to attack error nor warn his people against it. He said, The best method of defeating heresy is by establishing truth. One purpose is to fill a bushel with tares. Now I can fill it with wheat. I shall defeat his attempts. Surely the truth ought to be abundantly set forth. But this is not sufficient. The human mind is not like a bushel. It may learn much truth and yet go after folly. The effect of Mr. Newton's patience was unhappiness. He was hardly dead till many of his people went far astray. Paul wrote, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with long-suffering and doctrine. The more subtle, bitter and numerous the foes of truth are the more fearless and decided uh, should its friends be. The life of truth is more important than the life of any man's theories. What was John Plummer's, this is not in my notes, um, Denzel, this bit. What was John Plummer's um, issue with John Newton? John, the, what he believed was that, that his view of tenderness was above all other doctrines. So he set tenderness high and put 
the doctrines underneath him and viewed, so he elevated tenderness above all other doctrines. Therefore, because tenderness was the highest thing in John Newton's view, all other things fitted from this one thing of being habitually tender. Now, if you remember at the start, we said that Jesus was both strong and tender, and they went like that. And, and all scripture is God breathed. Where, where John Newton fell, and what, what, um, what Plummer is trying to say, is that all doctrines, st- there, there are, the major doctrines stand equal to themselves. That you shouldn't elevate one doctrine, particularly where you've got something like tenderness, above all the other doctrines. Because what that does is that that sheds light on all other things. So you can see that, can't you, in, in, in life itself. And that's what he'd done. He'd elevated tenderness and he'd elevated them above those. So therefore, that's what Plummer was saying. Plummer was saying, well, you elevated tenderness too high. I'll leave you to, uh, uh, to find out whether you, you think that that is true or not. But we're back to the notes, Denzel. Few things tend to make you more tender than, to, uh, than much sense of suffering and death. And what we have to remember is that Newton lived in a day when people were suffering much more than we are and death was more prevalent uh, amongst just life and particularly in church life. Newton described himself, he said, like that of a surgeon has principally consisted of walking in, hos- in a hospital. That's how he described his ministry. His biblical assessment of misery uh, was that he, that, uh, that he saw much of it or that, or that much of it could not be removed from life. He could bring to this life uh, relief and peace, but the best thing that could bring relief and peace was eternity. He would not be made hard or cynical by living amongst those things, even like Cooper's mental illness. He, he described walking through his life as this. I endeavour to walk through the world as a physician goes through Bedlam. I don't know if many of you... Do you know Bedlam, the asylum? I, famous asylum, actually. I endeavour to walk through this world as a physician goes through Bedlam. The patients make a noise, pester him with impertinence, hinder him in his business, but he does the best he can, so he gets through. In other words, his tender patience and persistence in caring for difficult people came in a real part due to a very sober realisation that he was not going to change the world that he was in, but he could tell people of a better world to come. Which is true. Our gospel can often be, it will get better. And Newton's message was, yet it will get better one day. It's a very different gospel. But Newton's uh, greatest thing was his gratitude towards his salvation. This was something that everybody described him as. Till the day he died, he never ceased to be amazed uh, that, uh, uh, that he was saved. At the age of 72, he wrote, Such a wretch! 
should not only be spared and pardoned, but reserved to the honour of preaching thy gospel, which he had blasphemed and renounced. This is too wonderful indeed. The more thou hast exalted me, the more I ought to abase myself. He wrote on his own epitaph. That's his own epitaph. He wrote, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith. He had long labelled to laboured to destroy, nearly sixteen years at Olney in Box and twenty eight years in this church. <laughs> when he wrote this narrative in the early nineteen sixties, he said, I know not that I have ever since seen since met so daring a blasphemer. The hymn we know, which we're going to sing at the end, the proper version, as Amazing Grace, was actually written to accompany a sermon. So he wrote the sermon, wrote the hymn, which is the way that he did it in those days. Uh, so it was based on 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse six, 16, and this was his sermon. He said, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me thus far? And his response to that, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I think his tenderness was to do with that. The effect of his amazement was tenderness towards each other. He wrote this, The wretch who has been saved by grace believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. This gives him an habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. Humble, under a sense of much forgiveness to himself. So I find it easy to forgive others. It's in the Bible, that, isn't it, I think? Forgiven much? Not that difficult. Do you know, it's, here's, here's what it, it's never the other person. It's always the understanding of the forgiveness that's been given. If you, have a pers- if you have an issue, sorry, this is a bit of a preach, isn't it? If you have a, an issue with a person and people, you're not supposed to work it out that way. You look it that way. That's what he was saying. So let's bring this to a conclusion with a few great quotes, uh, some of which you might know. Um, he viewed life like this, as always moving towards heaven. This is one of his quotes. A company of travellers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now, should, now he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out, as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, should take a stick and beat every blind man that he met. 
Yeah? He said this. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage would break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What fool should we think of him? If we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. New York is still in front of you. Look it up, me, not sure I get that. Look, let me just know this. Your carriage will break one day. Four wheels on my wagon and I'm still rolling along. There will be three wheels on your wagon, two wheels on my wagon, one wheel on my wagon. There will be a day when there will be no wheels on your wagon, but New York is still in view. Yeah? Okay. <coughs> We're still trying to work that one out. I am, not the, I am not what I ought to be. I am not the man that I wish to be. I am not the man that I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. Yeah? And just so that you would know, amazing grace actually looks like that. And that's the one that I'd like us to sing. Because at the bottom, uh, we have these verses. And what we tend to sing is that when we've been there 10,000 years, he didn't write that. He actually wrote that. And he didn't mean you to. They've added that on. And great though it is, it actually is out of context. And when you read that and you see the last verse like it is, you'll understand it. So shall we stand and sing Amazing Grace? And we're all through. You can, there's a, you, you can do the thing, as long as we don't sing when we've been there. Because it's really quite interesting that the one verse we get excited about was the verse that he didn't write. 